Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at The Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello, and welcome to Naked Reflections. I've always thought it's a bit of a mugs game imagining your own funeral, there's a danger that someone there may seem not so much upset as relieved. But in the Naked Reflection show Good Grief, Raymond Tallis came up with a good idea about, what shall I say, keeping up with the Boneses. One of the most striking uh, funerals, I think, was Ted Hughes's funeral, where halfway through his voice basically was reciting Fear No More, The Heat of the Sun, and so on, in his wonderful poetic voice, that's the kind of intervention I think I'd like. Give everybody a fright, you know, and when they're halfway through their drink, halfway through the service, to remind you, by the way, you know, this is the chap you're putting away. This week, we're focusing on what happens before that funeral. To put it bluntly, getting ready to die. Perhaps it's not something most of us want to think about until it's rather too late. But thankfully, some people have given this subject serious reflection. And there's a long history of palliative care. Earlier this year, The Lancet, the international medical journal founded way back in 1823, published the findings of its Commission on the Value of Death. It examined the story of dying in the 21st century, and among the topics explored, beautifully, in my view, was how life and death are bound together. Without death, it stated, there would be no life. More on the Commission later. But first, I'm delighted to welcome two knowledgeable, resourceful and compassionate guests to Naked Reflections. Dr. Philip Lodge, consultant in palliative medicine at the Royal Free Hospital and the Mary Curie Hospice in Hampstead. A recent article described Philip as always having time to care. A great compliment to a busy man. 
he's joined by Rueda Randry, a volunteer in the daycare unit at the St. John's Hospice in London for over eight years. Rueda's interest is in health psychology, and she's a tutor on the long-running Wolf Institute programme Diversity in End-of-Life Care, a course which trains healthcare professionals and volunteers about religious customs and beliefs on dying so that palliative care can be delivered with even more care. Philip, how do you help people get ready to die? I think that many people that I speak to are struggling with the day-to-day difficulties of becoming more unwell uh, with greater disability and the practicalities around that. The loss of self, the loss of autonomy, the feeling of being a burden on those that that are caring for them, all of those are, are major issues. And actually the idea of death, for some, not all, is one of it will be a relief. So sometimes it's not so much the death bit, but the bit before death that we talk about. Where there is room for planning and conversations, I try to help them to prioritise, really, what is the most important thing that you have left to do and to address that and then go down the list in in order of priority. And that can be very helpful. And and it's not just the practicalities around making a will and so on. It can be very simple conversations that they need to have with people that they love, people that they haven't seen for a couple of years. That kind of thing can give uh, at least some peace of mind. I don't, in my, I suppose, professional practice, talk about religion as such. I don't mention the God word. If that is a major part of someone's life, then I will happily engage my chaplaincy colleagues. I suppose what I I try not to do is, I don't know, cross a boundary. Rueda, I saw you nodding along there. Much of what you say makes so much of sense, I think, for me, working at the day centre in the hospice and dealing with patients when they come in when they've just been initially diagnosed with their life-threatening disease. And they could live for another two years or three years, or sometimes it could be as short as six months. But it's about talking about the things that are uppermost and foremost in their minds. And quite often it is just about daily living life, life things. It's about addressing family issues. It's about addressing relationship issues. I'd say 90% of the time people want to talk about their relationships, about problems they've had with family members or not. It really helps in sorting this out, in talking this through, because it leads for a smoother transition into the end stages of life. So what are the guiding principles for you, Rueda? Philip's mentioned how he approaches and his concern to help patients prioritise, his concern about not crossing boundaries. What would you say are the principles that guide your work as a volunteer at St John's Hospice? We want to address the patient's needs on an individual basis. And the guiding principles are obviously that of compassion, empathy, trust and respect for that patient irrespective of the ethnicity, cultural and religious backgrounds. It seeks to offer a holistic management. So first and foremost, address the patient's physical pain management symptoms or anything physical so that they can be at rest. And as well as satisfying their psychological, their social and their spiritual needs. So that I would say for the dying one, as well as for their family members, because often there's a lot of insecurity for the family members as well. And I would say that the fundamental purpose is to enhance the quality of life so that the dying can continue to live their lives in a purposeful and dignified way. So what does that mean in practice? Because I hear very fine words and I 
I sense the philosophy, if you like, the ethos. But, you know, listeners want to know, what does that mean? When COVID happened and we started doing a lot of our sessions virtually with our patients, we tried to devise new things to do with them because after a while, you know, the conversations were revolving around pain and being lonely and isolation. So we started doing these audio biographies, which ended up being so successful because we have such, as we've mentioned previously, diverse group of people from cultural, different ethnicities and cultural backgrounds. And we started talking about life stories. So not just about the dying process and the messages that they would like to leave for their loved ones. But instead, we started talking about how they came into the country, the experiences, and one story led to the next. And so a couple of them actually have done little journals and scrapbooks with their stories. We usually provide for them a a USB with the stories, but some of them love writing. So they've taken and adapted their stories and written them out. And one of our patients loves drawing and she did a little picture to complement each. And it's become a, a beautiful legacy to leave behind for families because they can't tell their stories or to the future generations to come. So quite often it would come down into early discussions about death. So with the day center, when people come in at a very early stage, we can start these conversations. Firstly, there's a misconception that when someone is going to go into palliative care or into hospice care, it is all about end of life and it's about ending life. And that's often not the case because you can continue in palliative care at the hospice while still undergoing curative treatment. So you can still go for chemo and you can still carry on whatever medical care that you need. But I think you can come in there knowing that You can talk about your spiritual needs, getting access to social care, if that's what you need to make your life simpler and easier. You can talk about how can you attain that forgiveness within yourself and from other people as well. It allows us to plan and to be the architects of our own deaths, of our own dying, rather than leaving it to someone else to plan what our dying is going to be about. We have birth plans when we are going to have babies. We can have this as well. We can have a plan and and be the architect of how we would like our end to be. Yes, it may not always follow to what we want. We can put forward our ideas of what we'd like for our ends. Another very important thing is that they are in socializing with people who are experiencing the same issues as themselves. So they don't feel there's a need to not talk about the elephant in the room, which is dying. They can talk about it openly and uh, listen to experiences of other people in that room. And they forge friendships, you know, they live lives in a holistic way, growing, learning every day. It doesn't stop if you are dying. Philip, in the introduction, I mentioned the Lancet Commission, the study of the value of death, if you like. It's a recent report. What were the key findings for you in terms of preparing to die? So I think there's two elements which really struck me. In my hospital practice, I pretty often frustrated and I suppose concerned about how much we do to people when they are coming towards the end of life. And actually, often when I become involved, it's very clear by definition probably that that's what's happening. And yet the medical team have put an enormous amount of effort in trying to stop death, meaning that they've put the person through numerous interventions traumatic invasive procedures to no avail before they finally start to recognize that we need to think differently and I think the medical approach to to caring for people has come to a point now where we need to change the emphasis sooner and recognize that that we aren't 
able to maintain life under under all circumstances and actually we shouldn't try to and i don't mean to be critical and i have an understanding of why it has come to this in my 30 odd years of of being a doctor things have changed amazingly in terms of the technological advances the different investigations and therapeutic um, procedures and options that have come online since since i've been around are huge and so the more choices we have, the more easy it is to make the wrong choice. I think that's a, that's an issue for us. And on top of that, information is no longer our preserve. Patients and patients' families instantly, really, at the touch of their thumbs, have access to everything I have access to in terms of knowledge. And therefore, demands, I think, have gone up. And if we do not do something, it is fair to say sometimes people say, you can do this, why aren't you doing it? And that's really hard to work with. I don't want to go all the way back to a lovely, old-fashioned, paternalistic approach. But on the other hand, I think as doctors, uh, we, we need to be almost the, um, trying to think of the word, uh, the preservers really of sense and realism when it comes to what we're trying to achieve with the patients. And the other aspect is outside medicine which is the societal issue around talking and thinking about death and dying. That's a major undertaking and obviously beyond the wit of a doctor to sort that out. But we all probably have a part to play in generating conversations and really making sure that what we're trying to do is not, how can I put it, deny treatment to people but to actually use what we have wisely and where it will benefit the most. I was reading one of your colleagues books, Catherine Mannix, who's she's done so much of work and she was saying that we've all become fixated on this life-preserving machinery of life. It's robbing us of being with our loved ones during the time of dying. We've forgotten what that experience is like and we just know that our our loved ones go into a hospital and they die and we never had that chance to reach a closure with them. And I think highlighted by COVID and people dying without anyone near them. I'd like to bring the conversation back to getting ready to die. And Rueda, in particular, when it comes to religious diversity, what role does religion, ethnicity, belief, national variety, what roles do they play? And do some groups find it more difficult coping? Quite often staff were guided by their own instincts or their personal beliefs and they felt that they hadn't fulfilled the religious needs of their, their patients because they are unaware of what to do. In normal circumstances, they would have reached out to chaplaincy services or the family members obviously would have been by the bedside to be able to offer that. And in that initial lockdown in March, especially when things just went stone cold, they really experienced a lot of difficulty at that time. And then, of course, in came technology and you know, family members could be virtually by the bedside to instigate things. But that first period showed that there was um, a death in knowledge at religious end-of-life practices. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Philip Lodge and Rueda Randry, and we're talking about getting ready to die. When it comes to dying, you might think that the fever of cells and molecules don't provide much useful guidance to us humans. And let me tell you, you're right. But it is fascinating. Here's Herman Stella on the Naked Scientist eLife show, Undead Cells. Cells that 
die can stimulate other cells to die as well. This is significant because both in normal developments and in certain disease situations, large groups of cells die in a somewhat coordinated behavior and the signal to die can be shared amongst the population and coordinated suicidal behaviors achieved, a little bit like lemmings all jumping over the cliff. Subsequently, a number of labs ensured that cells uh, can actually release signals to stimulate cell division. That seems to make sense in a situation when a cell is lost and you want to replace it. So it's a, I'm dying, please replace me signal. Herman Steller with some insights into the last will and testament of cells. Does the comment, I'm dying, please replace me, help us think about the subject of preparing for death? I'd like to say yes. You know, on a philosophical level, and even a, a realism level, we all know that that's the case. You know, we're here for a time and then we leave the world, either our children or those we leave behind. And that's the natural order of things. So the logic is there. And even the philosophy is there. But when it comes to one, does that really help us? I think there are some people who do find that helpful. You know, to leave a legacy will be a great comfort to too many people. But actually for others, it's no comfort whatsoever. The reality is they're, they're leaving the world they don't want to go. And nothing actually will make it acceptable. I do meet people who are remarkable, of course, and can deal with what's happening to them with a serenity that is not coming from any particular religious belief or cultural background. They just happen to possess it. I don't know why. And it's not correlated with age, time of life and so on. I've seen young people with a young family look it in the eye and go with it in the most calm way. Equally, I've seen people in their 90s go out kicking and screaming because it's unacceptable. I don't know why. Could it be innate? I doubt it. Could it be something to do with the relationships that they've either had or are having that give them that ability? I don't know. Is it anything to do with me? I don't think so. As a doctor, I think, of course, the majority of what I do is around medical care, interventions that might make people's lives more comfortable. I'm a great one for, for using drugs. I do like a drug. But equally, I think there is an art to medicine, which is about the talking and listening, which can be of help. But are we fundamentally able to look at ourselves as temporary and that we will be replaced? Oh, I don't know, Ed. I'm not sure. Philip, I can say that, to share a story, but as you say, you don't know where the serenity comes in. And we had a quite a young patient with a brain tumour, and he was religiously inclined. He was a, a young Syrian man. He had to have his right arm amputated, but he had the spirit, he had this will. He had this need to do something more than just accept it and die. So he took up painting, and he started literally with his left hand, which is not non-dominant, started doing these lovely pictures. He had a purpose and he did this little exhibition in the hospice and sold the money and he felt that he wanted to give back. So he took all of this and treated all the staff to some lovely things and he felt like he wanted to give back. It gave him his kind of purpose as well. So it's having that support and feeling that you're still worthwhile, that you can still live in a way that you can contribute. You're not just waiting to die. 
is part of that preparing to die process that is the focus, of course, of, of this discussion. I'm taken by the principle of the value of death. It's a remarkable phrase because we talk so much about the value of life, but the value of death and without death, there can be no life. And so the example you gave, Rueda, of you know someone painting towards the, the end of their life, giving that value in the, in the, at the end of life stage. Philip, you mentioned you're a fan of drugs. Just unpack that a little bit in terms of justifying palliative sedation. So sedation at the end of life is something that we will practice where the only way to maintain comfort is to allow someone to be asleep. I think if we didn't have qualms about that, then we we shouldn't be practicing. So when we come to that point, I think it's very important to get the views of the team that are involved and indeed make sure that the patient's family, because listen, in almost every case, by that time, the poor patient themselves is unable to participate in that conversation. But to get the family uh, together and actually explain why we're doing what, what we are doing. It is sometimes extremely hard for a family to go with that. They want to have every opportunity to have every last bit of communication with that person. And they don't want it to be in any way attended or, or restricted. However, I think the majority of families will say, whatever you need to do to keep them comfortable, do. I think we must be really clear that the intent is to allow them to be peaceful while they die and it is not to speed up their death that must be really clear i think it's it's only fair to say in all honesty we do not know whether how we manage that does hasten death or indeed whether it prolongs their death because if someone is using energy and using fluid by being agitated physically and in distress, uh, then I feel if you if you don't treat that, there's a theoretical chance that they will die more quickly. Whereas if they're sleeping peacefully, not using energy, not using water, then they may actually be with us longer. Now, I'm, I'm not going to say that that's a truth. It's a theory. We can't do a study to prove it either way. But sometimes that's a helpful conversation put nicely to have with family members. I think obviously there there is an ongoing debate about assisting people to die in some form in the UK and clearly that practice is spreading around the world. I'm not somebody who is strongly advocating a change in the law. I think the arguments for and against often are flawed and are not from the point of view of the people who are actually dying. And that's the important thing to recognise. It's all fine and dandy having a, a general public opinion poll, but that's the irrelevant audience. We need to talk to the people who are going through it and listen to them. Philip, I was just going to say, coming back on your point on the early conversations about death and the experiences, it's quite often that we are getting our own experiences about death vicariously. We, we don't know what it's like to be dying, so we're getting it from you know, TV programs, dramatizations, we're getting it from social media. And quite often, this is not 
what death is like. It's overplayed or it's underplayed. And the sensitivities of dying are not put across. And having these conversations early on with patients, I think, provides us with them with the opportunity of, and the family, loved ones, working through the different stages of how death will progress. Because like you say, it's necessary sometimes for there to be sedation or for the pain to be taken away. But if these conversations are brought in earlier, we can make put those plans in into place rather than when the patient is already distressed and distraught and then trying to make these decisions. I agree. And it's not uncommon for us to have that conversation with patients about what's going to happen. They ask and we, we answer. And sometimes I put it along the lines of, I hope that this is reassuring if I tell you that if things get to such a pass that the only way to help you is to allow you to be asleep. I hope that's helpful. And I think most of the time it is. I think one of the difficulties for us as a, as a clinical team is where the patient is still able to express their feelings and explain what they want and what they don't want. And they say to me, can you sedate me now? And that's a really tough one. I have to say along the lines of, yeah, but you're not ill enough yet. You're not dying enough yet. <laughs> Sometimes that is actually something they laugh at, which is reassuring. Not always. That element of humour seems to be so important in, in so many aspects of um, the Naked Reflections podcast over the years. Humour has been something that's cross boundaries. Um, and has enabled you to reach people in, in unexpected ways. I wonder, Rueda, whether that's also played out in the volunteer work that you're doing at St John's when humour is. And I guess there are times, of course, when we make a joke or make a remark and it's just the, the exact opposite of what we should do. Um, but is it helpful? Yes, I think it is helpful because people are still people and it's not all about being serious all the time. Everyone needs to forget as well. And we just need to live like normally rather than focusing only on one point all the time. And so, yes, we we have a laugh and a joke and we have the newspapers out and we have a big debate and we have big discussions and and uh, we have a laugh, talk about, you know, things that you can't always be serious. That's not the point of living, you know, and, and a person has to continue living so and can't be done solemnly. And I suppose that's important for both of you too, isn't it, Philip? That that, that ability to laugh uh, even even at the, the moments when you're feeling most drained and, and exhausted. Honestly, don't know what anyone would do without humour. Oh, gosh, I think I need to be really careful and, and say that, you know, within the team, both in the hospice and the hospital, we laugh, um, hopefully appropriately and... Um, not in a way that will raise a complaint for overdoing frivolity. Honestly, even in the patient's rooms, it is a really important aspect. Um, I think I have some kind of stock phrases, some stock issues that I like to talk about with particularly patients' families in that last period of life for the person they love. I can walk into a room, there will be a few people sitting around a bed and the person in the bed is no longer able to take part in the conversation. And I don't know if I've interrupted. I say, I'm really sorry to uh, disturb you. I just want to see, you know, how you're all doing. And we have a conversation. And I like to say, if I was in the bed, do you know what? I'd want you to be talking about normal stuff, ridiculous stuff, stupid memories, and laugh. And it's okay. And I think that's 
what would comfort me and hopefully that that's what would comfort them and almost always they all say absolutely yeah that's what we've been doing and we will carry on doing that and and it's vital i i can confess i went to see a patient after they died in the hospice once i knew them quite well and i knew the family quite well they were they were very shall i say easy family from a, a team perspective and also just lovely so i walked in and i said hello and they were all there having a cup of tea you know sitting with with the person that, that died and i walked up to him and i always say hello to them i never don't speak i said oh hello it's only me just just come to say goodbye and i looked at him and then i looked at the family and i said do you know what he looks a lot better now than he did yesterday <laughs> and they all fell about laughing now very lucky because it could have gone badly but it just came out uh, and they agreed he did he looked a lot better so humor can be incredibly helpful and i, I do employ it hopefully most of the time in the right places um, but it's almost something that we should be i don't know trained out of medical school stand-up comic improv i mean i'm sure i could talk for hours better not <laughs> i've told my youngest son uh, which track to play out everybody at my funeral um i've told him not to let anyone leave until the very end of the song track 14 on exile on main street brilliant in that case, I'm going to follow your example and tell you that this podcast has had its allotted time. Thanks very much to my guests, Philip Lodge and Rueda Randri, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you might also enjoy listening to our archive of podcasts, which include dialogues about mental health, silence, peace, and a lot, lot more. And feel free to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. There's plenty more to come too because I'll be back next week with new guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.